0: This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027.
1: Yesterday we got the biggest load shedding yet as at least seven units fell according to ESCOM's press statement there. Yep, it's another day of of, uh, load shedding then ESCOM confirming that it, it is day three and they will implement stage three of load shedding today and that power cuts will begin from eight o'clock until 11 p.m eight o'clock this morning so that's in just about an hour till 11 p.m this evening and they say that despite the generating units returning to service as planned the emergency reserves that's diesel and water are still very low what a morbid way to start the show good morning to you it is classic business breakfast on the 12th of february 2019 good morning tash
2: morning um so i read that uh, press statement that came out of the Scom with regards to the meeting yesterday that entire six hour meeting and i don't know what i was reading i was just like okay so you had a six hour meeting to get feedback about what's broken and what needs to be fixed and then
1: what Yeah, exactly And now they have a uh, sort of a crisis resolution of sorts and i'm just like yeah but you're sitting with a situ- scenario in a situation that you've had for the longest time anyway did you not foreplan plan for th- something like this did you not you know y- we're even finding out that there actually flaws design flaws at both midupi and kusile so that doesn't even help the scenario either those were supposed to be the shining stars that help get things back on track but we're sitting here with the same problem we had even before Midupi and Kusile. So what's the point? What are we spending that money on? Feels like at this point in time, we might as well have just gone for nuclear. But hey, yeah. you hear me say that. <laughs> <laughs> All
2: right. So uh, nonetheless, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, issues at ESCOM but then we're also going to bring in Noomsa because I think for the past two weeks or so or since the State of the Nation address, they've been saying that they are declaring war on ESCOM's privatization. But the question is, is it privatization? I want to find out from Noomsa what it is they believe um, It might be privatization and why they believe that is the case. So we'll speak to Pagamile Slubi a little later on on the show and get her views around that particular matter.
1: Yeah, still a lot of focus as we've been speaking about as common. We'll chat about that special meeting that they held yesterday. Uh, We'll chat to Roger Lilly as well as an energy analyst just about what exactly it entails. So, yes, they had this meeting, but where to from here?
2: Right, and then we'll look at the job numbers preview. We're expecting uh, those figures to come out later on today. And we'll speak to Mamukriti Timulopiane, who is a labor analyst about her expectations.
1: Yeah, and of course, Nedbank gets to chat to us about water and mining, just the sustainability of South Africa's mining industry, taking into consideration the likes of acid mine drainage. And having just had the uh, mining in Daba just last week, it's quite significant and important to put forward just how important uh, the sustainability inability of South Africa's mining sector is especially with water below the surface. We'll chat about that around 22 8. All that and a whole lot more coming up between now and 8 o'clock. Let's get into your Tuesday edition of Classic Business Breakfast with MoneyWeb.
0: This is Classic Business Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027
2: six minutes after seven, a quick check-in on the market. Stocks in Asia saw gains uh, in afternoon trade, with stocks in Japan leading in the region. The Nikkei jumped two and a half percent in afternoon trade. Mainland Chinese markets were higher by the afternoon. The Shenzhen component rising 1.3 percent, while the Shenzhen composite advanced uh, 1.3 percent as well. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed 53 points lower at 25,053 points. The S&P 500 and day, up less than 0.1% at 2,709 as gains in the industrial sectors were capped by losses in the healthcare and communication services. The Nasdaq Composite closed 0.1% higher at 7,307. And over in Europe, the 100 added 7 tenths of a percent, the French CAC up by 1%, the German DAX rising 7 tenths of a percent, and the All-Share Index gaining 3 tenths of a percent to 53,409 points, and the top 40 up 4 tenths of a percent.
0: This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Goumede and Nastasia Aransa on Classic 1027.
1: So Jameel Ahmed, global head of currency strategy at FXTM, joins us on the line. So too does Chantal Marks, portfolio manager FNB Wealth and Investment. But she's in studio with us this morning. Chantal, very quickly, you got some load shedding as well yesterday.
3: Yes, last night I had Chinese takeout, which at least was
1: <laughs> was something good.
3: Um, I really do enjoy. The
1: only benefit to have come out of last night. Yes,
3: huh? I rarely allow myself uh, takeaways, but I did have them last night. But I felt extremely sorry for myself. Yeah. Um, thankfully, my my laptop battery lasted about two hours i think
1: oh jeepers and it was a total four hours or so of, of load shedding right stage three today so it's going to be similar as well of course do look out for the schedule uh, just to see exactly when you might be load shed today if at all jamil let's chat to you very quickly as well then uh, south africa's currency has continued to weaken somewhat and perhaps that's more dollar strength than anything else it does seem then that uh, the us seems to be a little bit more shall we say progressive or uh, perhaps stronger with regards to those uh, trade talks, and that seems to be helping their currency somewhat.
4: Good morning, and thank you so much for having FXTM as always. So yes, it was a real brutal day for any currency yesterday that faces the dollar, including commodities like gold, oil, oil, And basically what's happened is the dollar strengthened significantly across the board. So the South African rand has now weakened quite a lot just at the beginning of the week uh, yesterday. The reason for the weakness is probably because, yes... No news when it comes to US China trade talks isn't necessarily a good thing because we're only 2.5 weeks away from the possibility that the US will import, I'm sorry, will increase tariffs even further on Chinese goods. However, the market's looking a bit more positive on Tuesday because of this news that's filtered through overnight that a deal has been reached to a a new U.S. shutdown, but generally speaking, most global investors are eagerly awaiting for any kind of guidance from the ongoing U.S. and China trade talks.
1: Is the market not just fatigued from this, though? I mean, it seems to have gone on for quite some time, and yes, we keep finding that you know every day there's, there's either a possibility of a of a resolution, then the next day there isn't, and then ne- it's just this yo-yoing, which doesn't seem to have uh, come to 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 a head at any point.
4: It certainly is a yo-yo and I would say that those in the market are fatigued of the headline. However, it's not something that's fatiguing financial market movements. If you check on our volatility chart, you can see the specific catalysts that are spiking movements higher throughout global markets and the Trump trade tariffs is you know the key theme. Generally speaking, the reason why the market is not fatigued in terms of price movements in towards portfolios is because of the severe concerns over how bad these trade tariffs are are going to be to the global economy, and believe it or not, we're already seeing this this year through the economic data. 2019 is not looking like a positive year. It's going to be a downturn from 2018, and we're seeing this economic data reaping through all sorts of emerging markets, Um, Chinese data. U.S. economic data is also starting to show indications of a downturn, and European, European data is certainly taking a turn for the worst
1: as well. One set of words that I haven't heard during this whole debacle is already priced in. It doesn't seem that we we actually know the outcome or even can speculate the outcome. So it isn't necessarily any bit that's priced in. And that's why perhaps the fatigue isn't settling in on this one.
4: I agree with you. That's exactly why investors and prices are so sensitive to any kind of headlines. Because even if the potential outcome is going to be a positive one that U.S. and China make friends again, nobody can determine when exactly this announcement is going to come out or if it gets a bit worse before it gets better. Again, nobody can determine when this announcement comes comes out. And part of the reason for this is because so much of this political risk news is not filtered through um, traditional economic data or traditional press announcements. It's coming through social media feeds like Twitter, which is completely taking investors off guard. And it's actually why the market behaves so erratically volatile to such a sensitive subject such as US-China trade tensions. You've got the two major economies in the world Going back and forth at each other.
1: Yeah. And very quickly, then, uh, your expectations for the remainder of the week. Anything else you'll be looking out for mainly?
4: Central bank guidance, um, just to wrap up quickly, yeah, central bank guidance, certainly we're going to be looking at if there's any more indications that develop central banks, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, ECB, even including the U.S. Federal Reserve, whether they're going to continue highlighting some anxiety over this trade issue and whether this could halt their monetary policy framework in terms of potentially raising interest rates in their respective economies.
1: Jamil Ahmed, appreciate your time. Global Head of Currency Strategy at FXTM. Chantal Marks still joining us in studio as well. There, Chantal, yesterday's market closing a little bit firmer, especially because of It's more than 2% gained on that front. The all share edging up a third of a percent there. So some good numbers coming to the fore. And it seems that with the coming back um, of uh, some of those Chinese markets as well, it has certainly helped uh, as well get some volumes back into our market.
3: Yeah, I mean, volumes were actually still quite slim, but uh, there was some volume behind Naspersh and uh, some support for Naspersh finally. Um, another thing that really helped Naspersh, and I guess uh, the entire RAND hedge basket was a slightly weaker RAND on the back of US dollar strength. And I suspect to a, to a lesser extent, uh, comments by Moody's not exactly flattering um on President Cyril Ramaphosa's SONA speech, uh, particularly quite negative around ESCOM. Uh, stage four load shedding certainly not helping matters. Um, but yeah, Rand Hedge Stocks doing a lot better, NASPAS doing a lot better, and that lifting the overall market. But the yeah. SA ink basket was incredibly weak still. Um, and the only kind of large SA-based uh, area of the market that found support was telecoms, and it was probably off a pretty weak base
1: yeah uh, you, you you mentioned telecoms yes last week you we obviously had the likes of mtn and uh, vodacom as well suffering just a tad but it has been a, a turbulent time for them but I wanted to focus a little bit more just on that on that nasper story as well if you, if you take a look at the fact that the Chinese regulators seem to perhaps be easing off a touch, they seem to be able to bring out a little bit more on gaming. They have that cloud service through Tencent, of course, in, in Asia, which is certainly going to help them. They're still above 30, uh, well, 3000 Rand a share. It's a behemoth. But do you expect it to continue in that upward trajectory this year?
3: Yeah, I mean, a lot depends on, on Tencent because Tencent remains the largest driver of the Nasdaq share price. Mm. Um, I mean, if you just look at what their stake in Tencent is worth and what Nasdaq is worth, the stake in Tencent is actually worth more than Nasdaq's entire market capitalization. Mm. So the market effectively prices the rest of its businesses um, at, at zero or below zero. Um you could argue that there should be a certain re-rating when it comes to these other businesses because when they sell it we've seen that they've gotten pretty good valuations yeah. and we've got multi choice being unbundled later um, later this month and it's it's not going to be worth less do you think this. that'll do
1: well for the price then of naspers on the whole when that unbundles
3: so it should be pregnant with uh, multi-choice already, yeah. uh, that if I can use that term. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that Tencent is such a large part of Nusbeth and it's so sentiment-driven um, that you probably won't see any sort of big impact. NASPA shareholders might get the benefit because they will get the multi choice share. Yeah. So they'll be able to 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 benefit from that. But at the moment it doesn't seem as if the share price is even reflecting multi choice mm. in there. Mm. Um so you've got that part of the of the re rating that needs to occur. And then also then there could be a discount narrowing towards ten cent. And then if ten cent does well, it's really good for NASPAS. Sure. And ten cent you could argue was heavily sold off last year. Yeah. Perhaps unfairly to a certain extent um we're not expecting as great numbers out of 10 cents as we've seen in the past um but we're certainly not expecting a, a massive disappointment come earnings season
1: yeah Chantel still joining us in studio we'll continue to unpack a whole lot more market news even the results out from uh, interim results that is from harmony and we'll unpack uh, a few more of those but jobs have certainly been in focus let's get into that
0: this is classic business breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027.
2: It's 15 minutes after seven stats essay will publish the quarterly labor force survey uh, today. And to talk to us about her expectations for the figures is Mama Kreti Mulopiane, who's a labor analyst. Mama Kreti, thank you so much for your time this morning. Perhaps before we even get into your expectations for this morning's uh, figures, what was the last figure for the third quarter? And perhaps then let's go into what you think the numbers will look like this time around.
5: Hi, good morning and to your listeners. Well, the third quarter's numbers were not exciting, if you recall. Um, we were facing um, high numbers of retrenchments and, and the economy based on how the economy was performing. Um, so I, I would say uh, going into this one, one expects, of course, positive news in the background of A December holiday, we know that during that period, what often happens is that temporary employment increases, uh, holiday employment increases, and that often uh, has an impact on how the numbers come out.
2: Right. I remember in the third quarter's figures uh, we had job losses um, across most of the sur- uh, sectors that were surveyed including manufacturing and construction sectors which I think were experiencing the largest quarterly declines. When you look back at 2018 um, manufacturing and construction has that always been I suppose the sticking block when it comes to um, the job losses?
5: Oh absolutely and and for very simple reasons really because uh, we know especially when you look at construction projects get started, projects get finished, and once projects get finished then the jobs that were created then um uh, comes to an end the same with manufacturing Certain products are put out in the market and and once that is completed um often uh, uh, employment comes to an end but also in terms of demands um in manufacturing, I still say it's 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 a it's an it's a bit i think Unfortunately, that government is spending so much trying to resuscitate our um, manufacturing sector when, in fact, in reality, it will never reach the levels of Asian countries. Um, however, it is still uh, one of the key sectors of our economy. I guess that's an argument they can always make. But yes, those two sectors will always have a topsy-turvy employment in that uh, most of them have high-value uh, projects, uh, that require urgent employment and bulk numbers of employment, but when those projects are completed, uh, obviously uh, there's no need to, or, or there's no reason for the employers to keep those
6: workers.
2: What's your overall assessment of uh, the domestic labour market uh, dynamics, so to speak, and perhaps also what can be done to drive those employment gains that we so desperately need?
5: You know, I, I write in my regular column on 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 money work about labour inequality and unemployment in South Africa. And one of the challenges I think that uh, we have is the the, the the demand, the mismatch between the demands of the private sector. And the skills that is out there, but also at the same time, uh, the challenges obviously are always um, going to be. Besides that, about income inequality in the labour market, and that often drives uh, the demand. You have highly highly skilled people with high wages, and very very low skilled people uh, with very low wages, and often that. Uh, Changes how our labour market performs and how employment is driven. It, it's a challenge for South Africa, and I I often say, uh, until that is fixed um, and in line with the linked with education, until that is fixed, we are always going to have this uh, unbalanced uh, demand in, in terms of work and labour, and and where there's um certain demand for certain skills, and, and we have a labor that cannot provide that. And, and, and it's something that the new government, when I say the new government, post-94 government, has struggled to address and has, to an extent, failed to address. And administrations after administrations have struggled to cope or keep up with that. Even during times of um positive growth in the economy in biggest administration. The mismatch between labour and, and the skills that are out there mm. often is a result of, of, of the high unemployment we are seeing. It's unsustainable, of course. We cannot have such high unemployment continuing year year after year.
2: Right. Mamakreti. let's leave it there. We'll catch up with you some other time to talk more about um, the labour market, but that is Mamakreti Mulopiane, who is a labour analyst. Let's have a look at traffic.
0: Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic Business Breakfast with MoneyWeb. All
1: right, so yesterday, ESCOM held a uh, meeting. Uh, between the board, management, and the Department of Public Enterprises, which lasted over six hours. And a lot of that meeting was based on trying to find a, a reason behind the unexpected load shedding uh, from this past Sunday. Today, of course, we are in day three. They found the reasons for it, and they've held a crisis meeting. Uh, that escalation surprising many as well, as they had uh, seven generating units tripping within a period of five hours. Uh, It has uh, seen that four of those units had returned to service, and it is expected that the remaining three will be back. There there will be a systems and an operations update within the next 24 hours. But now we're hosting this crisis meeting. Yes, uh, the board management, uh, the Department of Public Enterprise is hosting this six-hour meeting. But do we think anything will come out of it? Well, we just go back to things as they normally are. Roger Lilly, energy analyst uh, at EE Publishers as well, joining us on the line. Roger, thank you so much for your time. This is just a case of, yes, fine, we'll host this meeting and hope for the best and nothing really to be done after this.
7: Good morning, Arabila and your listeners. Uh, yeah, look, um, one gets the sense that uh, the Eskom team who know what's going on are not telling the people who need to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the sense that I'm getting. Um the problem the, the problem with the uh, load shedding is the fact that uh the equipment is failing and it's failing because uh, maintenance has been deferred or not done properly. Um you know that they had this uh, this, this this big festival of maintenance uh, last year when uh, senior managers were told that they couldn't go and leave, do you remember in December? Um and but but obviously things weren't done properly because uh, it must have been a a sort of a hit and miss affair because now suddenly, here we are in February, only two months after the maintenance, and uh, look, we, we have load shedding again, equipment failing, um, which is a very great concern.
1: At the same time, we've, we've gotten word that Midupi and Kusile, uh, which were, of course, intended to alleviate South Africa's power constraints, have a multitude of serious design and technical flaws that are impeding their operation. Wasn't the whole That's point easy. then of those two, as, as I just said, supposed to aid South Africa? Seems to be doing more harm than any good.
7: Yeah, no, you're right. Look, um, I, can mistake, of course, was doing two major projects simultaneously when they did not have the, the manpower or the or the skills to do it. Um, so I think there was a bit of pride, and it's it's uh, you know the old story: pride comes before the fall. Um, and the other thing with Nadupi and Casili is they are, they are so unique. They are specially designed for South Africa. They don't exist anywhere else. So there's no other reference point. The design has been done and it's been built according to that design. Now it comes out, oh well, there were mistakes in the design and now we're trying to find try workarounds around the design. And of course, that just delays everything. It costs a fortune. So not only are we spending a great deal of money on Nidupi and Kusili, probably twice as much as originally, maybe more, um, but we're also losing billions of land every day that we have load shedding because the, the, the economy takes a nasty knock when, when, when equipment gets turned off, when, when, when factories can't run.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about just a multitude of, of different segments of South Africa's economy that suffer just at the helm of load shedding. They've, they've put the, the blame squarely on Japanese conglomerate Mitsubishi Hitachi power systems um, and it, uh, saying then that you know this is also not the first time that their work at Midupi in particular has been found to be defective. In 2013, 10,000 welding faults were discovered when Hitachi failed to heat treat the welds. In 2015, they failed a, a crucial steam test as well. Should we just be changing those suppliers or, or that uh, that uh, that company as well, or is it just a case of we're lazy to work through these processes?
7: Well, I think I think the reality is that um, firstly, I think you're going to find difficulty finding someone else to come along and patch up some, you know, uh, Mitsubishi Hitachi's mistakes. Uh, which other company are going to come alongside and want to do it? They're going to want to strip things down and rebuild. It's going to take even longer. Secondly, I think Mitsubishi and Hitachi are contractually uh, bound to, to, to finish the job and to finish it according to the specifications given to them. So yes, it, it certainly is egg on their face. And it's a very bad reputation, um, but it doesn't solve our problem. Our, our problem is that those plants are not producing the electricity that we're supposed to have by now. Um, so you know, Eskin has to really come up with something special and. I'm beginning to think that uh, some years ago an offer was made by a a Turkish company um, which would provide a power ship, which would come alongside, park at a South African port and connect up to the grid and provide electricity within a week. Um, And that would relieve the load on some of the generating plants, which they could then uh, start taking out of service and do proper maintenance uh, and get them back up reliably. Because um, all that's happening, in, from what I can see, is a binary effect. We are, you, you, you take equipment offline to service it, but the equipment that's left can't manage the additional load until so you get another one trip out. And then, of course, that gets worse and worse until so you get the domino effect. That's why we have six run out fall out all at once
1: yeah we haven't spoken to you about this but your thoughts then very finally just on the splitting up of escom into those three will that help is that privatization through the back door as numsa says uh and and will it get you know get the the systems pro- hopefully up and running and add accountability
7: my, my opinion is that uh, by, by splitting it up i think we will have better uh, visibility and and uh, possibly accountability as to what's going on in each of the three sections. Um, I don't think enough focus has been put onto the generating section of, of, of ESCOM from outside the utility um, by the Ministry uh, of Public Enterprises. I think they are simply told everything's okay, don't worry when it isn't, um, and they believe it. And, and I, think, I think more independent, perhaps completely independent, private, consultants maybe need to be brought in to give update reports on a regular basis to the minister um, of what's really going on and not what ISKIN wants them to hear but what the reality is because then we can predict this of time
1: Roger Lilly, energy analyst at EE e- 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 Publishers, thank you so much for the time, really appreciate it man
0: Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Nastasia Aransa on Classic Business, Breakfast with MoneyWeb
2: uh, 732. Delivering his State of the Nation address in Parliament last week, President Cyril Ramaphosa committed to prioritizing the signing of the Competition Amendment Bill into law. It's geared primarily towards transforming the economy through aiding small to medium and black owned businesses. To talk to us a little bit more about the bill is Chris Charter who's the National Head of Competition Practice at Cliff Decker Hoffmayer. Thank you so much for your time Chris. Perhaps you can explain to us what the intention behind behind the bill is?
8: Sure. Morning, Natasha. Um, the bill is, is, is ambitious, but broadly it, it falls within the overarching government policy of uh, economic transformation. You might even say radical economic transformation. And it's really focused primarily on driving behavior towards developing perhaps what, what most people would admit is an underdeveloped uh, class of, of small businesses and black-owned businesses um, to develop those value chains is probably overall the intention of the bill. Um, it has a, a, a couple of prongs to that. Um, uh, the, an important one is, is enhanced ability on the part of the competition authority to run market inquiries. So uh, greater powers to call for information relating to industries and sectors which we perceive to be somewhat inefficient, and in particular those where there is a uh, perceived barrier to entry to expansion by small and uh, uh, black-owned companies. Um, there is one provision in the bill which is perhaps uh, a bit more controversial. Uh, that is a a, a requirement that uh, foreign acquiring firms when there's foreign investment that uh, they submit themselves to a secondary process or a parallel process which uh, is designed to make sure that any of those foreign acquisitions don't uh, jeopardize the national security. So. There's a national security veto in, in play also with the bill, which is not out of line with, with uh, a lot of developments in other jurisdictions, uh, but, but is perhaps a, a bit of a sore thumb.
2: I mean, President Cyril Ramaphosa, you know, embarked on this drive to, you know, attract I think a hundred billion dollars of investment uh, into South Africa. Does this bill work hand in hand with what he's trying to achieve, or at some point could it be a hindrance to his his plan?
8: It's um, difficult to say. Um, um, overall, I think this bill stands alone and it's probably uh, not entirely in line with, with, with what would consider uh, a red tape free uh, investment environment. But all around the world, regulation is, is increasingly recognized as necessary to put important term lines in place to sort of unfettered market economy. Markets have failed uh, around the world. So so broadly speaking, this shouldn't be unexpected to investors. In in my experience, uh, a deal in any jurisdiction that makes good commercial sense, if there's money to be made, people will will deal with the regulatory hurdles. So I have to be honest. Mm. uh, I don't don't share the thoughts of many that this is is kind of a nail in the coffin for foreign investment. It is is more regulation, um, but, but regulation is a reality all over the world.
2: All right, on that then, uh, do you see any opportunities that could arise as a result of this bill being signed into law?
8: Uh, I think there, there are a couple of opportunities. The, 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 the primary opportunity, I think, is, is frankly an opportunity for, for big business in particular to take a bit more cognizance of how their uh, procurement uh, policies and their, their selling conduct could, could improve and enhance uh, an underserviced value chain. And I think big business who... Pay a bit more attention to supplier development and value chain development. Uh, with a particular lens uh, on on uh, small businesses or black owned businesses, stand to do to do very well. They'll stand on and shoulders above their above their competitors, and uh, the competitors will be will be uh, fighting uh, enforcement action from the commission while while they're free to do to do to do business. So I think that's that's uh, that bodes well if if people get the attitude right. Small businesses, of course, have an opportunity to, to capitalize on, on the new rules, um, but small businesses will need to, to appreciate. And I think the draft regulations that have been published make it very clear that, that they will still need to work hard to be competitive.
2: On the topic of M&A activity, I mean, what's your view of what's happening um, in that space at this point?
8: Yeah, I think um, most would say that, that, that M&A activity is, is is pretty flat in South Africa. Um, uh the economy is, is, is not robust. Um which means that uh you know a lot of a lot of a lot of people I think uh with the capital to spend on investment and expansion are perhaps waiting until the decent general elections to see if things uh become a bit clearer. Um I think it's uncertainty which is which is really poison for for investment and and MA activity. So once we have more certainty as to as to where we're headed and the policy settles down, God willing. Uh, I think we will see see a lot more a lot more action on, on that front. All
2: right. Thank you so much for your time. That's Chris Charter, who's the National Head of Competition Practice at Cliff Decker Hoffmeyer. Arbile, I have to bring you and Chantal into this conversation. It's a fun one. <laughs> I just caught Chantal off guard there a little bit. If you could buy anybody's house who either you admire or as, um, I don't know, a hero of yours or whatever, uh, whose house would you buy?
1: Cheapest. I don't know what their houses look like, but because I'm a big fan of uh, Siso okay, I probably want to buy his house. All right. If I, well, I hope he gives it to me. I can't afford it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I so, have
3: yeah. absolutely no idea. It would have to be in South Africa. Don't okay. want a house anywhere else. Okay, right? but, now,
1: but now Cape Town or Joburg?
3: So... I do have a house in Joburg. Okay. So So let's be practical.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you don't want to go to Cape Town. You'd rather just stay in Joburg.
3: Yeah, but I I could have a holiday home perhaps in Cape Town. Okay. Somewhere with a view. I actually don't know where people live.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just where you live and everyone else, right? (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Why do you ask, Tash?
2: So Jeff Bezos' house, the house where Amazon was founded in Bellevue, Washington, Mm it's for sale you could buy it for 1.4 million dollars apparently it's relatively cheap compared to the local listings in the area sounds cheap yeah and it has three bedrooms and one and three quarters of a bath kind of thing
1: yeah wait that's jeff bezos's house
2: Yes, it's the house where Amazon was founded, and we're Uh, talking years uh, ago, not these current properties. I I thought
1: you were talking about his current house. No, 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 no. I'm talking
2: about where the the idea around Amazon, the garage where the famous picture was, that house is available for sale.
3: I'm actually getting ideas now of his
2: house.
1: (laughs) Okay, okay. 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 Okay.
3: So I'm thinking, Michael Jordan.
1: Okay, makes sense. He's
3: in he's in the Western Cape, right? But in the winelands. Yeah. So you've got. You've got space, you've got square footage <laughs> definitely Someone I definitely admire but yeah I'm not sure what his original home looked like. maybe that's a, that's an option too. He was also your
1: boss at some stage, wasn't he? He was
3: was my boss's boss's boss's
1: boss (laughs) at some stage. Wow. Talk about a pecking order here, right? And we actually
3: have a very flat hair (laughs) at FMB.
1: So for him to be your boss's 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 boss, then uh, sure. Okay. A lot happening on that front. But yeah, okay. Interesting one, though. Um, Any other people you're thinking of?
2: I am actually just, apart from that, I am drawing an absolute blank. Yeah. You don't want to change your answer. you stick into to that one. Yeah,
0: I still stick to him, yeah.
2: All right, yeah. let's uh, have a look at traffic.
0: Every morning, Arabile Goumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb.
1: So we've recently had the mining in daba of course and a whole lot of issues have arisen there with regards to the sustainability of south africa's mining segment and of course everything from jobs right through to making sure that mining can continue for a sustainable future have always been discussed so let's talk now about mining and water how do the two go together and what does it actually mean to ensure the sustainability of mining through mining And water. We chat now to uh, Catherine Kaufman, who is co head of infrastructure in the public sector and TMNT finance for Nedbank CIB. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Mining and water. How do the two go together?
6: I think it goes very well together, especially when you talk about sustainability. We know that the mining sector is one of the largest contributors to GDP. It's also one of the largest employers in the country and affects, I think, the lives of miners and ourselves and the ecosystem quite personally. What I mean by that is mining as much as it has a great impact on the economy, it has a very adverse impact on the environment and natural resources especially on water and water security. Unfortunately mining activities does affect our water security and that's mainly due to mining activities in the form of subsurface mining that happens below the waterbed. You experience what we call acid mine drainage. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it but it really refers to seepage that occurs from metals, toxins, pollutants into the waterbed and it makes it inappropriate for human consumption, mm. animal consumption, and you can't use it on plants. So from that perspective, the link between mining and water is is pretty easy to identify. Another reason why mining and water has become the buzzword is what you referred to in the beginning, which is sustainability of, yeah. of mining activities. Yeah. So the mining regulations also provide that mines have to create a sustainable environment at the end of life of a mine. Yeah. So when you have mine closures, you have to make sure that when the mine is no longer there, the land, the buildings, something has to be sustained. There has to be sure. sustainable activity past the mine life. Yeah. Looks quite onerous, but actually it's an opportunity for second economies. For instance, you can use the land from the mine for agriculture. Yes. You can use the water that's trapped in the mine, treat that water and use it for human consumption and for irrigation on this land. And on the issue of AMD, a lot of work's been done by mining companies already. A substantial investment has been put into it. Unfortunately, mostly from the really large mining houses, not yeah. the junior yes. miners so much, because they just don't have capacity mm. in terms of funding.
1: Yeah. In terms of ensuring that the likes of acid mine drainage don't continue to either just seep in or continue to form a habit, can we, one, reverse it, two, ensure that it happens minimalistically if nothing at all from here on in. Is there a way to, you know, be working in that way uh, for now for mining companies?
6: Absolutely. Obviously, um, a lot of the damage has already been done, so we need to fix that. But we Mm -hmm. can actually just, first of all, try and prevent it from happening in the first place. And mines have done, once again, quite a lot of work in that department. In fact, a lot of mines, there are mines, especially the likes of, I don't know if I'm allowed to name them, but Mm -hmm. the likes of Harmony, who have international awards And how they have worked towards making sure the mining activities don't impact natural resources or if they do, it's at a a minimal level. So the mines have done quite a lot of work there. And we do have the technology available locally to treat um, water that's been damaged by mining activities.
1: Mm. So net bank, mining and water. How do those two then come together?
6: That's my favourite topic, actually, <laughs> because NetBank, as you know, is the green bank, and as the green bank, we actually take it quite seriously. We first bank to sign what is called the Equator Principles. It's yeah. World Bank regulations for how you fund into a project and how you manage risks in the project, monitor sure. the risks, and what it means in this instance is wherever we apply our funding, we are acutely interested in how it impacts the environment, how it impacts the ecosystem. And mining assets being one of the largest assets on our balance sheet, we will be very interested in how mining activities impact the environment.
1: Mm. And then very finally, assistance then from the likes of government and other private uh, stakeholders, perhaps. Have you seen that sort of infiltrate into the sphere of the market and try to help uh, the sustainability of mining when it comes to whether it be acid mine, drainage, the water in itself as well? Uh, have you seen that amount of help come to the market?
6: Yes, there's been especially in the instance of mine closures, mm. there's been quite a development. The mine water coordinating body was established in twenty seventeen, officially launched at Netbank in twenty seventeen. It's really a collaboration between stakeholders, a very neutral platform of engagement towards mm. Collaborating, what is sustainable mine closure mm. in that respect? So The mine water body consists of the DWS, which yep. is Department of Water and Sanitation. I'm sorry I'm using sure. acronyms now. <laughs> the Department of Mineral and Resources, a few of the really big water users like ESCOM, uh, mining companies like Anglo, Exaro, South32, yeah. as well as Cecil, and civil societies and municipalities, because you can't really do this on your own mm. as a mine. Mm. It impacts the the whole society so they've been working towards creating sustainable solutions either by the use of their land once the mine is closed uh, for agriculture or taking the water that's actually in the mines um, and using that excess water treating it and using it for irrigation
1: yeah Absolutely wonderful story. I truly hope that it continues and that uh, sort of creates some, some sort of legacy, shall we call it that, uh, for continued uh, sustainability of mining, not just in South Africa, but clearly across the continent as well. Catherine Kaufman, appreciate your time They're Co-head of infrastructure for public sector and TMNT finance at NetBank CIB. Thank you so much for your time this
0: morning. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Nastasia Aransa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb
1: 750. So let's quickly get into some uh, other news making headlines right now. Uh, Harmony having come out with their interim set of earnings as well 34% increase in production, uh, 1.1 1. 1 billion rand operational free cash flow generated by operations. Their net debt also reduced by 333 million rand. Uh, that's to 4.6 billion. Still a high number on that front. Uh, you're, you're sort of assessment of the mining companies including harmony as well it seems to have been fairly okay of late Chantal,
3: yeah so it's been actually a good year for mining companies generally um, in particular in the precious metal space and um, even more particular pgms mm. um, gold has um seen some support from around basket price perspective um, but harmony actually Production looks really good, um, but it's flattered by the inclusion of of Hidden Valley, which is a new mine that came online for them. They also saw some really good um, head grades, which also would have had a had a positive impact there. Um, But they had several one-offs in their results. So if you actually look at the bottom line, um, headline earnings per share, I think, um, down quite significantly and and tracking well behind market expectations for the full year. Um, And the reason being um, there were several accounting adjustments. So with Hidden Valley coming online, it suddenly became a uh, depreciating asset. Mm. So they've actually had to take some depreciation and and amortization charges on Hidden Valley. um, And then also a lower derivative gains and a translation loss on some of their U.S. dollar denominated debt. So even though uh, debt did come down, the U.S. denominated uh, debt went up. Yeah. So um, yeah, a lot of uh, funnies in the Harmony result, but from a production perspective, definitely a lot better. Um, and I see that they've actually had one of their best safety performances um, in in years. Um, actually they're saying it's the best ever. Um, and that would translate into a better production performance. Mm-hmm. And generally that would translate into a better operational performance as well, which I think they did deliver. Um, despite profit being down by quite yeah. a bit.
1: Quarterly lost time injury frequency rate of 4.84, which is achieved by the South African operations in December 2018 in that quarter. And as you said, improved safety performance and the best ever uh, on that front Two Headline earnings per share, as you mentioned, down significantly. 94% uh, slipping there in a comparable period. So yeah, certainly a little, bit of, a little bit of hurt, but uh, a lot more coming through from them. So some sense of positivity there.
2: Chantal was mentioning a lot of funnies that are happening uh, with Harmony. F- the funnies that I believe everybody needs to talk about is what is happening at Woolworths in Australia. Because they've lost the their CEO. I think he is the third CEO to leave David Jones in yeah. five years. And yesterday they announced the resignation of its uh, finance experts, uh, Patrick Alloway and Gail Kelly. So yeah. With immediate effect. Eh? Yes. Yeah. So, th- yeah. We just don't know what is happening, and I don't know.
3: So there was a lot uh, of change in that Australian business, particularly at a headquarter level. So um, they actually, David Jones, as I understand it, used to be based in Sydney. Yeah. Uh, Country Road was based in Mel- in Melbourne, and they decided to merge headquarters for Country Road and David Jones, which resulted in quite a lot of people being uprooted. So you did see a measure of that kind of creeping into these resignations, but these ones are quite sudden, and they're quite <laughs> Late in the game, uh, which tells me that things probably aren't as good as uh, what Ian Moyer would want us to believe in Australia in terms of the the, the progression of the turnaround strategy. Mm. Um, and I mean, the share price reflected that yesterday, um, going well below fifty rand a share. Um, I guess it's from my perspective, I think it's starting to look uh, quite attractively priced. But um, there might still be bad news to come.
1: Isn't that the problem, though? That despite it heading low and looking attractive in that sense, is it good for the gains?
3: Good for the gains? Yeah. Is
1: it good to, to go up at some stage? I mean, would they not? And I mean, David Jones doesn't actually occupy that big a part of the company. It's around 10% or so. So, you know, Without it, would it not do better?
3: So at this point in time, if you look at the valuation and you kind of uh, strip it down to the sum of its parts, David Jones uh, is valued at zero by the market. David Jones doesn't have any value according to the market. Uh, Country Road is a very stable, very strong business, doing Mm. very well in Australia, which is actually quite a tough retail market. Um, And in South Africa, the food business is is, um, probably – moving into kind of best of breed space. You've got a potential for a turnaround in SA clothing. I mean it's it's been a Tough couple of years, but things are starting to look better. Mm. Uh, I don't know, uh, Nastasia. ladies' Mm. clothing is starting to (laughs) look a little bit better. You
2: know, funny enough, I walked into, so I barely shop at Woolworths in in the clothing side. I'm normally in the food space. Yeah, yeah, I would know that part. I would know that part. (laughs) So I ventured around, you know, the clothing side because now I wanted to see what they actually stock and who they're targeting and who would buy certain things. There were one or two items that were nice, but even then I was like, I don't know. Let me go and have a look at H&M and all the others and see who they're catering for, especially in the corporate office wear size. And there's a big difference. Mm. So I, I'm i still trying to understand Woolworth's clothing business, the food business I get completely. It's the yeah. clothing one that...
3: So, I mean, in the past, they used to be kind of the, the quality basics used to be their mantra. And they yeah. tried to change it to be a little bit more fashionable, I reckon, and compete with an H&M and a Zara. And that's not their space. That's not where they should be playing. Quality basics. That's what you want to buy yeah. at the Woolworths. You want to buy really good black pants. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not looking for, for all the, all the frills and stuff. So I, I guess they're moving into that direction. And, and if they can turn that around, um, there are definitely gains on the horizon. And if there's anything out of David Jones that looks remotely mm. like a recovery of what is a very weak base, you could see an improvement in that share price. And Trenary? That's part of the trainery falls under country road. Oh, so that's trainery, witchery, mumco, okay. uh, country road, and they've got a new business in there.
2: Name escapes me now. Okay. Oh, well. Arubile, any other hot news items? Yeah,
1: so uh, I've got at least two here coming through. And uh, this is one we've we've uh, literally just uh, chatted about not so long ago, a little bit off air as well. Dondo Mukhajani, the Director General of National Treasury. Um, President Cyril Ramaphosa has moved ahead with the disciplinary process against... Uh, and that's for failing to disclose his criminal record when applying for the job now, Ramaphosa initiated the remedial action in line with the report of the public protector uh, that's yesterday busisiwe uh, mkobane issuing the report in December on improper conduct regarding Mohajane's application for the position of his uh, and his subsequent appointment now it is just a traffic offense which he probably could have just told us And may have still even gotten the job, nonetheless. But decided to not put that through as a criminal record. And even having paid an admission of guilt fine in 2011 for contravening the Road Traffic Act for reckless or negligent driving. Can National Treasury just go back to being boring again? (laughs) That's actually the need right now. How much... Do you think this hurts National Treasury, if at all? Do you think we can still find some sense of stability? And does Dondo Mukhajani stay despite this?
3: See, National Treasury is a is an incredibly uh, well-regarded institution, and I don't think it's going to to do too much to tarnish the, the image of uh, what's really been kind of a stalwart in South African politics mm. from a departmental perspective. Um, does he stay? I don't think he can stay. Yeah. Uh, it's still... The- Right. So um, if you consider the Ntlanda Nene case, um, dishonesty, even though he didn't do anything wrong
2: technically, yeah. he
1: lied. He still lied. Right? And a lie that's, by
2: omission is still a lie. It is indeed. But that's one part of the blame. My question is, how are officials applying for jobs at such a strategic part of government treasury and no background checks are being done?
1: Oh yeah sufficiently so right it it wasn't if it was done it clearly wasn't done properly
2: i mean you can't rely on a z83 application form as the truth and then he goes Mm. through the various stages of the interviews and that's it
1: surely not it will be an interesting one to look out for. Very quickly before we close out the show, as well, the sugar uh, uh, um, sector is also struggling quite a bit. Uh, they generate about fourteen billion rand a year and is responsible for uh, responsible for at least three hundred fifty thousand jobs. And they say they're seeing a crisis on that front, stemming through from uh, that drought we had in South Africa, and they're in a perilous state. And uh, questioning why President Cyril Ramaphosa said. And I quote, sweet nothing uh, (laughs) in his State of the Nation address about the embattled sector. So they're hoping for a large uh, uh, bailout on that front, too. So we'll see how that one comes to the fore, the uh, sugar sector uh, struggling to stay afloat in South Africa, too. That brings us to the end of the Tuesday edition of Classic Business Breakfast. It's goodbye from me and Tash. And don't forget, we still have Chantal Marks. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, you get to say goodbye properly for us as well. Hey, Tash.
2: (laughs) Yes, we'll be back tomorrow. It's eight o'clock.